Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to Hold That Thought. I'm Claire Navarro. In today's podcast, we're going to be talking about tobacco. Now, we all know that cigarettes cause dangerous diseases. We also know that they're addictive. Maybe even you or a loved one has quit smoking or are trying to quit. But what many of us don't consider when we think about cigarettes is how many hundreds of millions of people around the world still use tobacco every day. Cigarettes are a truly global commodity, one that anthropologist Peter Benson has been studying for years. This is a subject that Benson knows very intimately. For his book, Tobacco Capitalism, Growers, Migrant Workers, and the Changing Face of a Global Industry, he spent more than a year picking and pruning tobacco alongside workers and riding around in pickup trucks with farm operators, getting to know the real story. So as an anthropologist, I conducted fieldwork in North Carolina and got to know tobacco farmers and farm workers in really close and intimate and revealing ways, and I gained a lot of respect for them. In this process, he was sort of able to separate out the business of tobacco from what most of us think about, the act of consumption, or in this case, smoking. He also wanted to zoom out even further and think about a more global perspective. It turns out that the story of tobacco's globalization started a long time ago. Back in the 1880s, there was this man named James B. Duke. Benson described him as sort of like the Vanderbilt or Rockefeller of tobacco. When Duke pioneered the cigarette, he referred to what he called the global market for this new product. And this was in the 1880s. So even as early as uh, just the post-Civil War period, Duke envisioned the idea that that China or Asia or uh, other continents would become great consumers of tobacco. So from the beginning of the invention of the cigarette in the 1880s and 1890s, tobacco was a kind of globalizing market. Of course, the impulse to spread this North American plant around the world didn't go away after James B. Duke. Part of the rationale for fighting the Cold War was to open up new markets to commodities, like cigarettes. In the 1980s and 90s, American trade representatives negotiating free trade agreements worked on behalf of the tobacco industry. One of the great paradoxes of tobacco is that while the U.S. government and the public health community have since the 1950s and 1960s become increasingly aware of the harms of tobacco, meanwhile, the trade wing of the American government, the kind of economic engine, the State Department, was all along busy uh, fighting for the expansion and opening of new markets in developing countries where people, they wanted people to purchase American-made cigarettes like Marlboro's. If this sounds like something that has to be ancient history, look to recent news headlines. Today, um, I think one of the hot button issues is President Obama's Trans-Pacific Partnership The American Chamber of Commerce has been advocating on behalf of tobacco companies uh, for the TPP because what the TPP will allow is, just like the historical pattern would predict, the influx of Marlboro cigarettes into countries in Southeast Asia, lower tariffs, lower taxes on American-made cigarettes. 
So tobacco companies like Philip Morris really stand to gain a lot from the TPP and the further globalization of tobacco products hinges on the continued uh, American support for free trade agreements like the TPP. At some level, this push to open up new markets for tobacco through trade agreements, like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, makes sense. After all, tobacco is a business that wants to make a profit, and we live in a global economy. But it also seems sort of crazy. Everybody knows that smoking is really dangerous. And at a time when corporations, including tobacco corporations, tout how socially responsible and transparent they are, Pushing a dangerous product in developing countries seems hypocritical at best. What's going on here? The analogy is a little bit like, you know, you hear sometimes about these Hollywood celebrities who do a lot of endorsements overseas, but they don't do a lot in the United States because they don't want to seem cheesy. I don't know who does it, but so for example, like Tom Cruise will do an endorsement for, I don't know, beer or something in Japan, or Gwyneth Paltrow will do an endorsement for a cosmetic line in Korea, but they don't do endorsements in the United States because it would ruin their brand. They would seem kind of crass or cheesy. It's a little bit like that. You know, Philip Morris and other tobacco companies talk a lot about responsibility in the United States. But when it comes to Marlboro's flooding the market in Cambodia, they're not really, they're not really feeling the responsibility when it comes to potentially young people in Cambodia smoking, because that's where their profits lie. Benson has been researching corporate social responsibility in tobacco, and I asked him whether he agreed with the World Health Organization's stance that the tobacco industry and corporate responsibility is just an inherent contradiction. The two can't go together. He said that though there are certainly plenty of examples of tobacco companies being blatantly dishonest or hypocritical, he's interested in looking at corporate responsibility in a more nuanced way. You know, what's interesting to me, more more than the doublespeak, is doing an analysis of the particular content of the corporate social responsibility messaging. So what values do, do they promote? Philip Morris promotes um, parenting as a value. That's something that's really prominent in its corporate social responsibility campaign, and it's something that I've been publishing on. Well, why does Philip Morris talk a lot about parenting? They could talk about anything. They're responsible, right? They could talk about, they could talk about cigarettes or not advertising in Hollywood movies or you know, product placement. There's lots of areas of of kind of market ethics they could talk about, but they talk a lot about parenting. And they, they produce literature about how parents can talk to their kids about not smoking. And I've been intrigued by this. Part of what's so intriguing about this is that when you think about it, there's another message underlying this focus on good parenting. Parents are really responsible for smoking, not companies and not the government. Because if parents are responsible, the companies kind of get let off the hook and the government doesn't really need to be involved. If it's just about you talking to your kid about smoking or not smoking, well, if your kid grows up to smoke, it's kind of your fault. 
In addition to shifting blame, parents talking to kids about smoking is not exactly a proven way to actually stop kids from smoking. I mean, talking to your kids about smoking is probably ineffective. Your kids are probably going to smoke if that's the way to prevent them from smoking. And on top of all that, by playing into messages about personal responsibility that we're already used to hearing, whether about alcohol or guns or anything else that's dangerous, in some ways, the tobacco companies are continuing to dominate how people think about cigarettes. So when the tobacco industry says it's all up to adults, they're not really contradicting something in society. I mean, we believe that about everything. That doesn't really contradict core consumerist impulses, whether it's in the United States or a country like Nigeria. They can promote that message wherever they go. And this means that the types of measures that actually do prevent people from smoking, things like higher prices or public smoking bans, get left out of the conversation. This type of thinking means that people around the world will continue to be at risk. I have to be honest about, you know, what I think uh, about tobacco. And I, I just think, you know, from a public health standpoint, it, it's, it's really harmful and it, it's not necessarily like alcohol where you have kind of recreational use. There, there isn't really a recreational context for tobacco use. People become addicted and then they want to stop. So what should be done? Even with a product as dangerous as cigarettes, the answer is not exactly clear. What is clear is that current conversations and regulations aren't enough. I, I find it dissatisfying, unsatisfying, the ways that, that we have a kind of like mediocre response to tobacco that has really allowed the tobacco industry to stay in the game, even be strengthened around the idea of adult choice. But let me emphasize that having done my fieldwork in North Carolina, and having a great sympathy for the growers there I don't, and respect for them, I don't think that you can just get rid of tobacco without compensating people. You know, they have businesses at stake and livelihoods at stake. And we do have a government after all. You could, you could do something like phase it out or pay people to, to phase it out or, you know, provide resources for them to transition to other crops or other businesses or provide economic development programs for rural regions or, you know, I mean, all of these are possibilities. But in a context in which the tobacco industry so powerfully promotes the idea of an, of an, of an adult choice, those are not possibilities. And that, that's kind of what's unfortunate to me. I asked Benson to talk more about what he thinks about all this personally. Even as a researcher, when spending so much time thinking about such an enormous public health risk, I'd imagine it would be hard not to have some sort of emotional reaction. The words he came up with were sad and astonished. When considering that tobacco kills around 6 million people each year, and 80% of the world's billion current smokers live in low- and middle-income countries, it's hard not to agree with him. There's, there's lots of social problems and health problems. And drugs are a big problem. You know, heroin's a problem. 
but it's a very different kind of problem than tobacco. We're, we're talking about a massive industry that for a century has been, you know, criminally negligent and corrupt and has been litigated against and found to be corrupt and criminal and wrongful and deceitful, but it's still around, you know, and, and it's, it's very profitable and being globalized and in a way that's, that's maybe more harmful than ever. That's just kind of astonishing to me that that's, that that's how it's played out. Because other, other chemicals, like lead, aren't around anymore. You know, asbestos isn't around anymore. It, it's, it, asbestos isn't an informed adult choice. Getting lead in your paint or your gasoline isn't an adult choice. So I, I wonder why tobacco remains an adult choice. Many thanks to Pete Benson for joining Hold That Thought. For many more ideas to explore, please visit holdthatthought.wusdl.edu. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and PRX. Thanks for listening.